Well, don't you love that old song? Isn't it amazing that that is now an old hymn? But what a great one. How many of you got your scripture journals this morning? Hold them up. Let's see. Man, that's encouraging. Going to Nehemiah 5 and 6 is where we're going to be studying from this morning. And in, in the passage we're studying, they're having a hard time loving each other. Before we get into that, I want to say a little bit more about Friend Day. Friend Day's coming up on September the 25th, just a few weeks. And uh, we want to do the best job we've done in years of inviting people to be here. And so our shepherds are taking the lead. And our elders and their wives have committed to invite at least 92 people over the next few weeks. And so our challenge to you and to me is for all of us to be thinking of those people that this could be their first step toward Christ or first step toward getting plugged into church. So that's going to be really, really exciting. Now this morning we're going to start in Nehemiah 6.3. This may be my favorite verse in the whole Bible. Remember Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem? Well, they've come back and they're trying to stop the work on the wall. And, and, and they're trying to call Nehemiah out of the city for a peace conference. And listen to Nehemiah's response, verse 3. And I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? Nehemiah is not going to be diverted from his mission. I love that Nehemiah understands the rebuilding of the city of God is a great work. And I'm not going to waste my time talking to the critics who don't care about God. I think it's so, so very important that we understand that. That basically he's saying, I don't have time to do that because the mission is too big. I think of the history of this church, and you've heard me share this before. An incredible moment in this church was when Dick Thompson stood on this stage and said, your elders want you to know our goal no longer is to keep all of you happy. Well, what are you going to do? We're going to try to keep God happy. There's a mission even bigger than our own happiness. And I remember in those early days when we were getting lots and lots of criticism, my brother Don Tarode saying, when I wanted to respond to outside criticism, we don't do that. We're just going to stay true to our mission, and we're not going to be diverted by outside critics. Well, if you read Nehemiah, they come back four times. And four times, Nehemiah says, I'm not coming down. I'm not fooling with this. I'm not listening to this. So when we have threats to the mission, which will be really important is we distinguish here. First of all, external threats Nehemiah refused to listen to. And that's why I think as a church, you can handle outside criticism. What's difficult is internal. And so internal threats Nehemiah refused to ignore. You see the difference? When it was external threats, he's willing to just shut them down. When it comes to internal threats, he knows he can't ignore it. And guys, as a church, we need to learn today. When it's external threats, we can't handle that. Well, we, we can't help that. We don't have to respond to that. But when it comes to what happens in here, then we have to. So let's watch Nehemiah. Because Nehemiah understands the internal threats are more damaging. You get that? I'm thinking about our country right now. I, I don't think many of us think America is going to be destroyed anytime soon from an external threat. At this point in history, we're almost a lone superpower. But I think all of us are concerned 
that we could be destroyed by internal threats. Because most of us have woke up to a day where there's never been more, more division. And that's what's damaging. And that's what's happening here. In fact, here's the term I'd use for it today. It's friendly fire. What is friendly fire? You know, it's a military term where you're shot and killed by your own troops. It's an awful thing. Probably the most remembered example of this is Pat Tillman. There's a a picture of him in his Arizona Cardinals uniform. He was a star player for the Cardinals. In 2002, he was offered $3.6 million a year. He turned it down because he was so upset about 9-11. And he enrolled in the Army. He became an Army Ranger, and he went to Afghanistan. And most of us can remember the night we saw that this man who gave up so much to go defend our country was killed. But then over the next few weeks, you begin to hear these leaks that maybe he wasn't killed by the opposing army. He was actually mistaken and killed by our people. You see, what happened is our people thought he was with the opposing army because they were from Afghan volunteers there with him. And they saw that and they assumed it was the enemy and they shot and they killed and so what a tragic loss. It's one thing to go, you know what, we're out of war and I was killed by somebody on the opposition, someone we're fighting. It's quite another thing when we find out it's in internal fire. And that's what Nehemiah is dealing with. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. Sums up what's happening in this section of Nehemiah. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and their wives against their Jewish brothers. It's internal. They're not worried about Sanballat and Geshem and Tobiah. They are worried about their fellow Jews. Now, let me sort of give you context here. What's happening here? They have been so busy and they've needed so many people to rebuild the wall that they have neglected the farms outside the city. And so they wake up now and there's a shortage of food. And in the shortage of food, some people take advantage of it. Most of us remember what happened in Hurricane Katrina. When that happened in New Orleans, you know, as soon as it happened, there was lots of people taking advantage of it, and there was lots of looting. And then later in the rebuilding of New Orleans, there was a lot of people who who charged exorbitant prices for things. Our own people were abusing our own people. And that's what's happened to Nehemiah. They don't have enough food and, and so now they're beginning to take advantage of each other. So there's this big outcry, not against the enemies, but about each other. Now let me just give you a list of some of the things that are going on, some of the, some of the friendly fire they're taking. First of all, they're taking advantage of the poor. Guys, normally when, when there's a problem, you know, in a culture, it's the poor that are first to lose out. And so now with the food shortage, the wealthy are able to get all the food they want, and they're able to hoard it, and then on top of this, they're charging interest. If you know your Bible, you know from Deuteronomy chapter 23, that God had commanded his people, you can loan each other money, but you cannot charge your brothers and sisters interest. In the middle of this, they're charging these poor people incredible interest. These people are getting so poor that they're having to sell their land It's even so bad they're having to sell their children. 
So it's a mess. There's even people that are working with the enemy. You get over to chapter 6, and some of those noblemen we read about last week, they were sort of goofing off, you know. They are now communicating with the enemies and telling them actually what's going on in Jerusalem. And then they're spreading rumors. They're saying, Nehemiah's committing sedition. He's, he's trying to overthrow King Artaxerxes. Because they know if this rumor gets back to the king in Babylon, he can shut this thing down. He's not dealing with any kind of threat. And then on top of that, part of the friendly fire was actually tempting Nehemiah to sin. In in chapter 6, there's this man, Shema, who comes to Nehemiah or sends word to Nehemiah. I know things are getting really dangerous. Would you meet me at the temple? Well, for us, that sounds just completely innocent. But Nehemiah was not a priest. He had no right to go in the temple. And this man's not trying to meet Nehemiah at the temple to protect him. He's trying to meet Nehemiah to the temple to, uh, to degrade him by getting him caught in a sin. We all know what sin can do to any organization. Can you imagine if Nehemiah had fallen to this? But he didn't. Now, let's, let's mark this. We expect opposition from the enemies. But we don't expect opposition from our brothers and sisters. And let's be honest, this is much more damaging. You know, if, if you want to take down a, a major building, we've seen those explosions. They don't, they don't shoot rockets at the building. They go within the building, they plant dynamite, and then they light it and let it go off, and the building is destroyed in a few seconds. And guys, that kind of internal opposition hurts so much. A psalm that has always been really meaningful to me when I felt like maybe I was attacked. Psalms 55, where, where, where King David, somebody really close to him has turned. It may have been Absalom, I'm not sure. But listen to what he says, Psalm 55, verse 12. If an enemy were insulting me, I could endure it. If a foe were rising against me, I could hide. But as you, a man like myself, my companion, my close friend, with whom I once enjoyed sweet fellowship at the house of God, as we walked about among the worshipers. David said, what really, really hurts is it's not my enemy who's attacking me and spreading rumors. It's one of my brothers and sisters. And so Nehemiah refused to ignore this. Watch how he deals with it. Go back to Nehemiah chapter 5. Let's go to verse 6. His first reaction is absolute anger. I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. I took counsel with myself. (laughs) Literally, I spoke to myself about it. And I brought charges against the nobles and officials. I said to them, you're exacting interest each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, we as far as we are able have brought back our Jewish brothers and have been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. Man, these guys, they're convicted. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. 
Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this interest, this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day. All the stuff you've been ripping off, their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, their houses, and the percentage, the percentage of money, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. I mean, he, he, he pounces on this. And here's the good news. They repent. Then they said, we will restore these and require nothing for them. We will do as you say. Talking about somebody responding to a sermon. Um, these guys, they, they immediately respond. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they as promised. Now watch this. He, he's serious about this. I shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. Nehemiah decides to use a visual aid. So he takes up this big garment and he begins to shake out anything that might be in it. And he says to the people, if you don't keep this oath to stop treating each other this way, if you don't start loving one another as God has loved you, then this is what can happen. So how does Nehemiah deal with this? Nehemiah's reaction, first of all, was anger. This is what you would call righteous anger. Because all anger is not sinful. Nehemiah is completely blessed to be angry about the people of God being abused. Because it's It's almost parallel to Jesus in the temple. Why does Jesus go in the temple and lose his temper, turn the tables over, get a whip, and run people up? Because they were abusing their fellow Jew. They were charging too much for sacrifices. The place that was meant to be a place to connect with God had become the place where people were abused. And so it's angry. I love the next thing. A lot of translations say, after that, Nehemiah ponders. He's got to think about this. The Bible does say, be angry, but what? Sin not. Nehemiah's not going to go in here and fly off the handle. He's going to stop a moment. Some translations put it this way. I took counsel with myself. I love, I love the New Living Translation. After thinking it over. Okay? He's really angry. Listen to me. What I love about Nehemiah, what worries me about too many of us, is that we are so passive. We are passive in the face of evil. Like it doesn't mean anything. And I'm not talking about passive out there. We shouldn't expect non-Christians to act like Christians. It's the craziest thing I've ever seen when we think it's our job to go out there and correct everybody. But within the house of God, yes, we've been given that judgment. And so Nehemiah's angry. He thinks about it. And then he confronts. He confronts them with the truth of God's word. He confronts them with how God feels about this. He says to them, do you guys, don't you, don't you at least fear God? Or are you even thinking about what God's thinking about this? You see, guys, this kind of confrontation is very loving. It's caring enough to say to one another, I'm not going to just sit back and let you stay in sin or you let me stay in sin and let God's kingdom be destroyed. I love what the wise man said in Proverbs, better open rebuke than love that's concealed. If you say to me, buddy, I know you're going down the wrong path. I know you're sinning, but I love you too much to say something about it. The wise man would say, hogwash, you don't even love him. 
If you love him, it would be better to have an open rebuke. And that's what Nehemiah does here. And even in the New Testament, we're told if a brother is caught in a sin, that we are to go to them. And then finally, you saw in verse 13, Nehemiah threatens them. God's not putting up with this. Can you imagine just a moment how God feels in this story? Um, This is his people. These are his children. As a parent, have you ever seen your kids grow up and some of them have long-term conflict? Ever been in a family where certain people didn't want to be in the room at the same time other people? Or was uncomfortable? Let, Let me tell you, it breaks a parent's heart. And God's heart is broken. And that's why Nehemiah feels like he's got to come down on this. Now, why can Nehemiah be so strong here? If you, if you have, make sure you read the end of chapter 5. Nehemiah can be this strong because he's not doing this. Nehemiah is living a life of integrity. In fact, Nehemiah can share later in chapter 5, hey guys, I didn't even take the allowance of food that a, a governor's supposed to take. I had 150 people to feed at my table. He names all the, the food he needed. And I had an allowance from the government I should be able to take, but, but because I wanted to be above board, I didn't do it. So Nehemiah is able to speak from a position of integrity. Galatians 6.1 says, If a brother is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should go to him in a spirit of gentleness, watching yourself lest you too be tempted. So Nehemiah calls them to repentance. And here's, for you guys, here's the great news. They repent. And here's what happens. Repentance leads to worship, all right? Look at what happens in verse 13. And all the assembly said, amen, and praise the Lord. What's amen? So be it. Nehemiah says, guys, this is sinful. This is wrong. You got to stop doing it. And they go, Amen, we agree, we repent. And then what do they do? They just stop and praise the Lord. Guys, anytime there's real repentance, it ought to lead to real celebration. You know, we see that in the prodigal son, Luke chapter 15. He comes back. Father doesn't put him on probation, he throws him a party. I remember a really wise man in Pensacola, his name was Joe McReynolds, and we were watching him because we had little kids, and they were raising really great kids. And I noticed one thing he told me, at least he told me about it, I'd seen it, is if any of his children had done something wrong and they were disciplined, the moment they repented and said, I'm sorry, I don't want to do that, he'd throw a party. Just right in the middle of the house. They'd just stop and they would just celebrate what had happened. And that's what Nehemiah's doing. And guys, when we see people change, because guys, listen to me. Every one of us can be tempted to go in some of these directions. I'm going to give you some specific things I think that tempt us as a church in just a few moments. And some of them we may have fallen into. But listen to me. The moment someone in here repents is the moment we worship. Now, why is this worthy of worship? Because the kind of unity and love that Nehemiah is calling for is completely unnormal. It's not the way people normally live. You know that. Look across the world today, all the division. Look in families. Look even in churches. 
Because that, that, that's why in, in the New Testament, the church explodes. is because they've never seen an organization where Jews and Gentiles, slave and masters, rich and poor, all got together and loved each other. It, someone says it's the greatest miracle of the book of Acts is the way they loved each other. Because it's not normal. And listen to me, guys. Satan will do anything he can to stop it. First of all, he'll lob some external threats, but that's not really what scares me. What scares me is when we start backbiting each other. So our challenge then is to live a life that is so holy, so different, so loving that people take notice. They do. So let me get practical for just a few moments. What are landmarks, greatest internal threats? And your list may be different than mine. But I want to give you six things that I think could threaten this church. Now, I'm, I'm not saying these because I think these are going on, okay? Because one thing I love telling people, because a lot of people come and go, man, Landmark's so diverse and all these different ways, you know, economically, racially, you know, even some theological issue. I mean, there's, there's a lot of diversity here, and I love to say, yes, we're diverse, and we don't even all see eye to eye on some things. But what I can tell you about this church is there is great unity. I love being able to tell people that because it's a great example. But how would Satan attack us? Let me just let's go down the line. Number one, just like he attacked these people, through division. Because there, there always can be a dividing line, just like in this, between those with more money and those with least resources. Sometimes our, our American way is I want to be around people that are like me. And so if you come from a different economic background or maybe racial background or even religious background... I've heard people say this before, guys. It breaks my heart. I mean, we got a great life group, but these people, they just don't fit in. My, my friends, if someone is a follower of Jesus Christ, they had better fit in. Amen? So it can be division. It can be division between, um, you know, schools. We have great groups of people who send their kids to private school. Great groups of people who homeschool, great groups of people who public school. We know from our youth ministry, that can actually be a source of division if we don't handle it right. If we look down on parents and people who make different choices than we do, that could be a source of division. Worship styles. I mean, it can easily divide us. If people in one service look down on the other, act like they're suspect, and, you know, sometimes we joke about those things, but I don't think it's really a joking matter. I'm going to say some things I said 20 years ago, okay? Back when worship began to be more expressive and people began to clap and people began to raise their hand. I always remember a guy cornering me in the back. He was a guest. He said, did you hear that clapping in there? I said, yeah. He said, what do you think about it? I said, it's in the Bible. He went, I know. He was so mad. How in the world did God let that in there? You know what I'm saying? But here's what we said 20 years ago, guys. I will say this to you today. If you want to clap, clap. If you don't feel like clapping, don't clap. If you're a hand raiser, some of you, it's just natural, man. You just, you just get into praise. And some of you, your hands are glued with super glue to your legs. And you, I mean, somebody told me the other day, I try. I just, they just won't go up. Let me say this to you. That's okay. 
You know, if you're a hand raiser, don't judge the non-hand raisers. If you're a non-hand raiser, don't you judge the, the hand raisers. If you like the acapella service, don't judge the instrumental service. If you're in the instrumental service, don't judge the acapella service. Guys, listen to me, guys. We don't know each other's hearts. And one of the easiest ways Satan could destroy the awesome things that are happening in this church right now is through division. And let me just be really practical here. I had never seen it in my life like I saw it through the pandemic. Now, I thought about a lot of things splitting our church, but I had never thought about masks. And, and guys, let's be honest. It's really not masks, it's politics. And guys, that's what God gives us shepherds. I remember, and I can, I can share this, okay? I remember sharing to a brother. When we were in the middle of this and we were meeting outside and people wanted to meet outside because you didn't have to wear a mask. But we did ask if you would wear your mask from your car to your seat. And, and this brother told me, he said, I just can't do this. I'm not going to make my children do this. I refuse. And in the long run, we made an exception and said, come on, get out of your car, walk up here. You don't have to put a mask on. But he was so angry about it. Finally, and I was close enough to him. So I finally just called him. I said, brother, can I talk to you about this a moment? I know you don't agree with this. Could you one Sunday bring your family? Then we started meeting inside. He wouldn't come. Could you bring your family together in the den and say, guys, I want you to know, I really don't agree with the elders about this. But they are the elders of this church. And this is the areas they're to rule on. We're going to submit and we're going to wear our masks to church. And I said, could, could you say that? He said, no. I couldn't say it. Because Satan is able to use the silliest things to divide us. And he, that's what he can do. That's, number two is sin. I mean, guys, we all know what sin has done to so many churches. Now, there's a point back in the early 90s when Landmark had first moved out to East Montgomery in this incredible facility where there was sin in the leadership of the church, and it did incredible damage. And some of you are here, you remember that. Church was on a roll. Church was doing good, reaching lots of people. And Satan was able to attack the minister and bring everything to a halt. And so when you look at the leadership of this church, you need to be praying that we stay above sin. Because Satan knows one of the best ways to stop things. Anybody listen to that Mars Hill podcast? I mean, it, it's incredible about this church out west, mega church, completely destroyed because of the arrogance and sin of the pastor. Even today, even this week, there was an announcement about a well-known minister in our country who had to step aside because of some inappropriate behavior. And I'm not standing up here saying I couldn't do it because the truth is any of us could. And that's why we've got to be on our knees because Satan knows if he can bring down a shepherd, a minister, a leader, he can do great damage. Number three is I think Landmark's internal threats could be gossip. Guys, we've got to be really, really careful about this because we have such a bad view of gossip. I hear too many people walk up to someone else and say, got any gossip? You, you, you got any juicy gossip for me? I dare you. 
Because we love gossip too much in our culture, and it bleeds over into churches. And sometimes innocently, we hear something about somebody, and we tell somebody else. And you know before it's over, there's, there's all these things being said that aren't true, or maybe they are true. They just shouldn't be said. And we live in a world where we're looking for the worst of each other. Even the broader Christian community. And, uh, I was introduced to a website probably two years ago called False Teacher Friday. And every Friday they delighted in finding somebody that they were going to label a false teacher. And guys, if you look at what about big stuff? False Teacher Friday. Can you imagine? Because we, we've got to guard ourselves against gossip. Because if you hear something about somebody or someone's trying to tell you, shut it down. If you've got an issue with someone, we've talked about it, the biblical example is you go to that person. Because, all, you know, I, I remember hearing someone say years ago, all you have to do to get someone to believe anything is to whisper it. And then we believe it. And you've been there, I've been there, where, where gossip spread about you, and all of a sudden, you know, six months later, someone says, well, buddy, do, do you really believe that? Is that really true? And all you had to do is say, that's crazy. I never believe that. Don't believe that. Didn't do that. Gossip, number, number four, and let's go down the line, there is a potential for false teaching. In the day that we live, we've got to be on guard for false teaching. And I'm not talking about, you know, silly little things about whether you clap or not. I'm talking about true theological issues where the inspiration of Scripture is questioned. Where the original model of marriage in Genesis and of human sexuality that God has created people, male and female, were things that basic. And you know it because you, you hear it. And it's not just going out in the world, it's, go, it's, it's splitting major denominations right now. And it's even happening in the church of Christ. We think we're immune to it. We've got to be on guard against that. Number five, guys, we've got to be on guard against arrogance. It's so easy when you come to a place spiritually to look down on people that aren't where you are. But again, I, I think I'm needing to repeat some things I said 20-something years ago. What bothered me about the conservative church of Christ I grew up in is it was so stinking arrogant. And we looked down on people who looked at things different than us, right? Anybody experience that? What bothers me about many churches of Christ and can even be landmark is that we become arrogant on the other side. We just believe the other side of the issue and we're going to look down on people, those poor backward people who still believe that. Guys, that is not of God. None of us have any reason but to be humble in the sight of God. And then number six, this is probably the greatest internal threat. It's just apathy. You see what scares me about this story? Is I'm afraid many of us wouldn't be angry. Oh, yeah, we know there's a little gossip over here. And, you know, these charge a little bit too much interest. But, you know, they'll probably get over it, you know. And, no, 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 no. Because we, we, we cannot be passive people. The question here is, do we care enough? Do we feel? 
or, or, or we're going to do, or we can be like Nehemiah who goes, you know what? There are some problems among us, and we're not going to ignore it. Because churches are destroyed by people ignoring things they know are problems. We cannot be that kind of church. So, Nehemiah does something amazing here. Because Nehemiah boldly faced both his external and internal opposition. Let's look what happened. Look in chapter 6, verse 15 with me just for a second. Chapter 6, verse 15. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of Elul in 52 days. Guys, think about this. This is Jerusalem. Because Nehemiah is such a focused leader. They finished this thing in 52 days. It's quite an accomplishment. And then look at verse, verse 16. Look what happened with the enemies. And when our, our, our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem. Well, watch this next line. For they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Even the heathens knew these guys had something special. I want to show you a parallel verse in the New Testament. If you have your Bible, Philippians chapter 1. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says. Sounds extremely, extremely similar. Philippians chapter 1. Go with me to verse 27. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. Listen to what he says. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it's been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. What's he saying? Guys, when we have the miracle of unity, even the demons have to step up and notice. When when God's people are so united that external criticism can't stop us, Internal problems are dealt with. We begin to be unified. Not only will the mission be completed, but the enemy will be intimidated. Why? Because they knew God was in the middle of it. I challenge you, go back and read Nehemiah 5 and 6 and read how many times it says they feared the Lord. They loved the Lord. God strengthened their hands. We completed the wall with the help of God. So, guys, this is a great challenge to us. Let me ask a few questions to close out, okay? I want you to think about it. I'm going to think about it for a second. First of all, as a church, are we prepared to face friendly fire? Because, guys, I, I think we can probably guess that Satan's greatest ploy to attack our church is not going to be from people that are not a part of our church. It's going to be when we don't deal with our own internal problems or even problems with each other. We let them fester. So I ask you, are we prepared 
It's so easy when you're part of a great church like this and things are going so well, you know, and you think, man, you know, I just show up for church and things click and there's all these programs going on and all these people coming to Landmark, all these people coming to Christ. That's awesome. But it's easy for us just to, to sort of take it for granted. Listen, I told you last week, Satan doesn't have to attack a dead church. He's already got them, Right? So he's going to come against an alive church. Mark it down. And here's our question. Are we ready to confront it? If you've got a problem with a brother and sister, a brother or sister, are you willing to go? If you see me caught in sin or someone else caught in sin, are we willing, not in arrogance, but in gentleness to go and restore them? Second question. As a Christian... Have you been guilty of friendly fire? I mean, some of the things we listed, especially over these last few years. You know, as culture's been crazy and our church has been through a pretty major transition, have you been guilty of gossip? Have you shared things that you shouldn't have said? Have you been overly critical? Are you judging people who they're not right or wrong? You're not right or wrong. They're just different. Because listen, different is not right or wrong. It's just sleeping. It's just different. And yet our human nature says, if you're not like me, you don't worship like me, you don't connect with God the way I do, I judge you. So as a church and as Christians... Guys, the, the great thing about this story, this, here's the awesome thing, you, and you might overlook it if you're not careful. They repented. They actually did. And then they celebrated. And guys, I'm not pointing fingers here. I can be just as guilty of anybody of saying something I shouldn't have said. I, I think if Satan's going to defeat us in any way, normally it's going to come through our tongue, right? And sometimes we're upset and we're angry and we don't do what Nehemiah did. We don't stop and think it through. We just blab. So again, I'm not pointing fingers with this question. I'm asking you to think about it. I'm asking me to think about it. And one more question. As a Christian, have you been wounded by friendly fires? Friendly fire. Guys, if, if I were to ask people in this audience... How many of you have been hurt by church? My guess is probably close to the majority of people raise their hand. You've had somebody gossip about you. Maybe you went through a divorce and people didn't really know what was going on, and yet you came to church and you felt ostracized. Or you shared your belief about a certain topic and people came after you. Or maybe when you were really, really hurting, we just neglected you. But somehow, you're wounded by friendly fire, and that's hard, because we sort of expect it from other people. Well, we don't expect it from each other. So here's what happens in Nehemiah, guys. More important than even the walls being repaired is that these people's hearts were repaired. And if you're hurting today, maybe you're the 
victim of friendly fire. Some of us do it. We don't even know it. And and you need us to pray for you. Or maybe you've been guilty of throwing out some friendly fire. It's a great chance to repent, to confess. And you know what we're going to do? We're not putting you on probation. I hope you wouldn't put me on probation. We're going to celebrate just like they did in Nehemiah. So let's stand together and sing.